Hello and welcome back to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. We are breaking down the health tech news so you don't have to. And this week I am joined by two very special guests, Chief Happiness Officer of Somex Nuno and Deputy Chief Happiness Officer of Somex Seymour. I'm also joined by James and Hugh. Um, but if you do hear any noises through the recording of this podcast, it's not indigestion. It is, in fact, our Chief Happiness Officers doing the job that they are employed to do. So uh, hello from them, and hopefully they stay quiet for the duration of this conversation. So this week, in fact yesterday... God, that feels like a long time ago. But yesterday, we were lucky enough to host a dinner with Google Cloud. And we were joined by 25 people, 25 executives, in fact, from across biotech, life sciences. And, well, we had our first Christmas dinner of the year, which was early. It is still November, but thoroughly enjoyable. And uh, we had such an incredible speaker. It was Kareem, the... CEO and founder of InstaDeep, who basically is an organization pioneering AI technology and helping other companies to leverage the latest AI technologies to solve problems within their business. And he actually attended the UK AI Safety Summit. And I mean, really felt like we're in the presence of greatness. It was such an incredible conversation. And he had so much to share from those discussions about how really, you know, they were what was truly incredible from his point of view was the fact that you had people who were representing governments from the UK, the US, and even China. But first and foremost, kind of safety was right at the center of those conversations and people really put their kind of geopolitics aside to focus on the challenge at hand which is how to use AI in an appropriate way to protect against bad actors and talk about where AI may go and the risks that we need to be mitigating for across the next few years and how we do that. Um, He even said that he managed to get five minutes with Elon Musk which is pretty cool no matter how you feel about him um and in fact shared some of his theories for why Elon acquired X or formerly known as Twitter should I say James did you enjoy that conversation as much as I did uh, I did yes it was a fabulous conversation for me I think the thing that was fascinating was he talked about aligning we talked about the all aligning incentives you're right that the geopolitics was definitely put aside and they wanted to talk about uh, well they wanted to agree on what the risks were of AI and that was an incredible part of what they all managed to do and I think what he talked about was essentially the concept of AI takeoff and he said the existential threat of AI wiping us all out and developing a purpose to end humanity was not actually top of the list it was it was still talked about but actually the existential or the threat, I should say, that was most notable was the fact that we've crossed the point at which AI can train itself. And that results in an acceleration of AI, which means that the power of AI becomes such that if it is in the hands of good actors, great, but because of the lack of regulation, it could fall into the hands of bad actors and be incredibly dangerous. It was universally accepted by everybody that that was a risk or was a large risk. But on top of that risk, what they actually talked about was the optimism and actually the, 
he said the the optimism of the room and of the conversations was such that you could genuinely feel excited by the potential of what AI can do for humanity. Um, it, it was, as I say, an incredible conversation. It, it, uh, incredible speaker to have at a dinner. <laughs> I recommend. Uh, Everyone finds cream, and you're right. There was there's a photo. There was a photo of me on Twitter actually the day after of him talking to Elon, and he mentioned that conversation. I asked him over dinner what was the most interesting conversation that you had, knowing full well that he'd spoken to Elon Musk at this point, um, and hoping that he said it because he actually didn't mention Elon in his whole talk. He's a very humble man, um, but yeah, he obviously said his most interesting talk was five minutes with Elon, and he said he was very humble. He listened to him. They actually had a good chat around the view that they both shared on AI safety. So, yeah, very, very cool, very cool dinner. It was a good way to start the week and the festivities. And I think the one thing that I also took away from that was ultimately that AI is not going to be the differentiator for any company or individual because everyone ultimately is going to be using this frontier AI, this next generation AI. The real differentiator is going to be the deep domain expertise that exists in those companies, but also the quality of data. And he said that those will be the two most important assets for any organizational company working in any industry, because that is what is going to set people up for success, but also are going to be fundamental to creating AI technologies that really do solve real problems. So there's your hot tip for the week. Um, if you are a technology company using AI in any way or thinking about it, prioritise those two. But Hugh, what have you been thinking about this week? Well, I've not been to anywhere near as many uh, exciting dinners uh, on that side. <laughs> yeah. uh, to be honest, I've just started thinking about AI now that we're talking about it. <laughs> and I'd, I'd love to get a sense of whether AI is still going to be the big buzzword in health tech raising an investment next year, are we still going to see more uh, companies uh, put AI in your deck and you'll get something in a way that uh, a lot of people were saying was the case early in 2023? Uh, or are we going to see that deep domain expertise, as you were saying, brought out a bit more uh, in decks rather than sort of GPT is the next big thing, we're building on a GPT wrapper or mm. uh, something that side. So I'm interested to see, looking at 2024, what that tech investment's going to look like, mm. what that, what that, the, the new companies that we see, the ones that start making their, making their mark are actually going to be claiming as their big selling point, their big USP. Personally, I do think AI will still be here throughout next year. One of the things that Cream talked about actually was there's a big debate around should large language model technology and generative AI technology broadly be open source or not. He said that was actually one of the biggest conversations that they had and was genuinely polarizing. You had extreme experts on both sides of that argument. And actually, Kareem's view was that the open source nature of any technology will be a year or two behind that of what's actually possible. And that small but critical nuance is probably what prevents a lot of the more dangerous activity with a lot of the a lot of this type of technology just lagging it behind by a year or two allows different people to catch up essentially to to get it get more of a grip on it and to play out some of the more dangerous scenarios and mitigate for them i guess but as that debate continues 
there will be open source technology available. People will still be building on top of it. I think they will absolutely still be building on top of it in healthcare. People will also be building their own privately too. And I think we've only just scratched the surface. And, and speaking to those people last night, like technologists, like real leaders in technology and in, in biotech, like this is going absolutely nowhere. Like absolutely nowhere. The volume of problems that can be solved in a variety of ways that is actually increasing exponentially in itself. Like our realization of what can be solved is increasing. And we're seeing that in a micro level, just in even like our use of ChatGBT on a daily basis, uh, let alone what people like Kareem are building, like LLMs for DNA, for example, that you can basically talk to it and see what you need to do to change DNA to match a certain phenotypic thing that you want happening or whatever like it's wild the amount of stuff that can happen so for me it's going absolutely nowhere and how's i mean from your read on the ground how's everyone feeling about llms and generative ai versus the old school machine learning approach yeah are we is it are investors health techs biotechs only caring about the llm side or oh, is there still a place for classic ai definitely still a place there's representatives around the table from both, I would say. Well, I say both. Like, there were machine learning engineers around that table that were talking about both. There were computer scientists around the table talking about both. There were clinicians. There were biotech founders. There were chief strategy officers for NASDAQ-listed companies, but everyone was talking about both. And I think that's, it. that's just it. I think everyone, yeah is excited about it. I will say that large language models has clearly given a lot, like a second wind almost to AI as a, in a conversation more broadly. But the, the main things people were talking about were off the back of the AI safety summit and Kareem's talk. It was very much about what does the future look like with LLMs and how have LLMs changed things. Okay, so sidestepping somewhat into our first story, um, not about AI, some of you may be pleased to hear, but still talking about data, comes to us from MedCity and asks why consumers should care about biomarkers and really has just served as a very good reminder that I need to get my Apple Watch fixed. Hmm. But James, you read this one. What, what are we talking about here and what is it telling us? This article's caught my eye just because I think my understanding of biomarkers and I guess where I've positioned biomarkers in my head has always been, I guess, clinical, medical, academic, almost, research, all those types of words come into play. What this article talks a lot about is consumer and the future of biomarker technologies for consumers. And on reflection... Yes, biomarkers have been a consumer technology for quite a while. And I think I've just gotten used to that incredibly quickly. Smartwatches, sleep patterns, aura rings, you name it. They really have become a, it really has become a consumer technology. I guess the bit that kind of not got my back up, but just made me feel a bit uneasy was this sentence, the use of biomarkers also extends into the cosmetics space. For example, Neutrogena offers a tool that uses a device's camera 
to scan your face and create a customized skincare routine. Uses precision scanning via smartphone cameras to measure key skin health parameters. And I don't know what it was about this, but that doesn't sound like a dermatological thing solving a problem. That sounds a little bit like a gimmick intended to be sold to make money off people. And perhaps that is a massive judgment on my part that I need to learn a lot more about this, but I don't know what problem that solves for people. And where there are, where there's so much work that can be done with biomarkers in areas that solve critical problems for people and prevention and early diagnostics and early intervention and things like that and, and finding biomarkers in voice for anxiety, depression and everything that we talked about on this podcast before, there was something about this that just made me feel a little bit uneasy that this article... I feel like, well, there is just quite literally a call to action at the end. There's a line at the end of this article that literally says, embracing biomarker technologies aligns with evolving consumer needs. And I, don't, I just don't know how I feel about that. So I can answer your question, maybe, um, on, the, on that Neutrogena example, where is that just a mechanism to sell more products. So skincare beauty is a space that is traditionally very focused on women and takes advantage of the beauty ideals that are inflicted on women, I guess. And, and that is where money is made. Mm. As a woman, I know how much money I spend on beauty and skincare and I am not a high maintenance person in that respect I, I don't spend a great deal but I spend a lot I am definitely influenced by advertising on products that promise to deliver you know reduce my darker circles or get rid of my wrinkles or whatever it might be the benefit I see to this actually is that it sells less products but it's more focused on products that are going to work and in a space that is very very crowded where as a woman, you are constantly being told that you're not beautiful enough, you're not young enough, you need this product to look better. It's actually kind of refreshing to hear that there's a company who's going to use a technology to tell you the right products to use. I mean, I don't know the ins and outs, don't know the details, but this is how I'm seeing it kind of play out in my mind, that it allows it to be more focused and maybe you to be less influenced by all of the marketing that you're constantly bombarded by. And that is just one example. But there's another story in Pigeon this week that talks about the Aura Ring and Clue joining forces, forming a collaboration. And I think the Aura Ring has also partnered with Natural Cycles too. And I think that's an interesting partnership that kind of probably falls under this consumer banner, but straddles the kind of wellness and health mm fence at the same time where I, I, I don't, again don't know the details of those partnerships and I, I don't know whether or not there is any like advertising based on biomarker results or anything related to that but ultimately I do think it in those spaces for example where women's health okay coming back to that again is doesn't have great coverage across healthcare those kinds of biomarkers can give people a better window into their health in a space where you're flooded with advertising about your fertility and your age and all of these kinds of things. So I think, you know, 
I see real benefits to it, but I also hear what you're saying, that it feels almost Machiavellian here, the suggestion that biomarkers should be a differentiator for consumer companies to essentially make more money, which is, I think, uncomfortable for people as it pertains to health and healthcare. However, I think if you take the commercials out of it, when you look at, for example, a medicine, we know that people who are taking like a prescribed medication, medicine's adherence is an issue, those kinds of things where perhaps where it's supported by some kind of like tracking device, it can improve regularity of people taking their medication, perhaps it's at the right time, or in fact it can give a, you know, a closer view of how people should take their medication that isn't necessarily in line with like more generalised prescribing parameters. So, and, and we know that that means that that, that that then results in better outcomes for people. So in that respect, it, those biomarkers are going to give a competitive edge from that commercial perspective. But I think it's an uncomfortable dichotomy because of the space that we sit in and this sits in, is my opinion. I can echo that, that point on the uh, skincare and, and spending piece. Uh, there's a lot uh, in my bathroom at the moment. Uh, I'm not putting my partner in this one, but she does spend a lot on skincare. And it is, it, it, there's a lot of trial and error in you know, treating yourself in self-care in that, in that piece as well. And I think any insights, any data that you can take advantage of that, it's going to be great for the consumer. But I think, we, you know, we talk a lot about empowering people to look after their own health. And there are and that kind of preventative piece as well. There's a lot you can do just in how you look after yourself in, you know, understanding your body and understanding the biomarkers, the data that forms, that, that tells you about your body. A lot of it, though, is just data when it's on a page, isn't it? You know, there's nothing for all, for all of these companies that say, oh, we have the, we can get, show you these biomarkers. If they're not presenting it to you in an insightful format, equally, you've got to be careful. You don't want to worry people. Mm. Um, you know, a consumer app that tells you something's wrong with you, go see a doctor. That could be useful. It could also be terrifying. But I think... Um, Jess, you, you pointed to the, the Uruing Clue partnership, and there's, I think there's some discussion in this article as well about how you make the most of the biomarkers that are out there already mm. um, and how partnerships and how bringing together that data can actually lead to useful insights for consumers. Mm. That's, I, I'm, not, I'm not fully nuts about the whole biomarkers is your strategy. It should be your strategy to get ahead in consumer. But if you can bring insights based off of it, that's, that's where you're going to have well, valuable insights that, you know, affect consumer behaviour in a non-commercial, in a behavioural change way, in a positive form, that's where there will be a, a strong impact. If you know the device you're buying, the test that you're doing as part of your skincare re regime is actually going to help you because it's taken these biomarkers and made a and, and made an impact that saves you money and improves your mm. uh, complexion, your skin, whatever, whatever it is you're trying to solve that's when the real impact's going to be seen mm. yeah what you're both saying is like if if you've got good actors in the space and they're a consumer company and they implement biomarkers and they give the right data to their customers uh, and potential customers in a way that is actionable in the right way and yada 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 if 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 if, yeah. if then it's fine and it's just a lot of ifs there for me and 
you can argue, okay, regulation can come in and, and do a job, whatever. But again, we're similar to this AI conversation that we're having about like, ultimately with brand new technology, it comes down to, or, or even here, brand, like a brand new deployment of a technology into a space, like biomarkers have been pretty happy where they were. Now they're going to hit consumer in, in a more, or cosmetics in a, in a more meaningful way. It just becomes about, okay, well, there's going to be good actors and bad actors and a massive gray area in the middle. And that's what concerns me a bit because of everything that you've just said, yeah, it relies on good actors. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what concerns me about health. And I mean, give the article its due. It, it says here there's the adoption of biomarkers. It's the next evolution in enhancing customer experience. Okay, fine. Several factors to consider when deploying it. One of them is usability. And they literally say in here, there's a there's a question. How can we ensure data integrity with biomarker detection technology in consumer applications? How can we make the data accessible and usable for the average consumer without professional assistance or live analysis, acknowledging that medically trained personnel relies on rely on years of education? These are all questions that have no answers. But yeah, I think the answer lies in there somewhere. Like how? They talk about regulatory and privacy standards. But like, I don't know. Yeah, as I say, makes me uncomfortable. I get it. If you've got an educated person, fine. But ultimately, there's a gimmick that can make people uh, part with their money. So this really neatly echoes a conversation that I had when I was hosting a panel September, October in Strasbourg. Um, and it was about biomarkers. And it was exactly this conversation. The crux of the problem is that actually biomarkers are not well enough to find. And so what some people perceive to be a biomarker is absolutely not a, a biomarker mm. to someone else. And so for that reason, it's really difficult to regulate them because you have to regulate something according to a, according to a specified definition. And so far, that hasn't been done by any regulatory organisation. And it then, you're right, it does become a Wild West. And there is, as it stands, there's, there is work ongoing, is my understanding, the FDA and, and other organisations to explore it. But there's nowhere that the buck stops. And so I think that it does leave a lot of space for, I guess, potentially abuse, but in the worst case scenario, <laughs> but but misuse perhaps and, and misrepresentation. Um and I think that's a real challenge. And unfortunately, you know, that even on that panel, I was joined by, I think, five different experts and all the way from academia through um, consumer are not all the way to the other side, even in some clinical instances. There, there just isn't consensus around how biomarkers can and should be used in an objective way and in a consistent way. Um, so it's it's incredibly it's incredibly tough um but i guess there's also something about bringing in you that you raise a question about making sure that you know the data is accessible and usable for the average consumer and one of the points they raised on that panel was actually bringing that we talked about patients but the consumer into those conversations Mm. what is it that they need what is the average understanding and and having that really palpable evidence i guess for the way that you are presenting that but also i think probably clear disclaimers about and the fact that these are useful indicators we know that for example i know that when i go and do a workout that my apple watch is not 
exact, but it's giving me an indication. And do you know what? It's a useful reminder to me that I have been sat down way too much. I only need to get out and do a walk because my watch is telling me I've done 1.3 kilometers all day and I probably need some fresh air. The dog needs a walk. Hey, Nuno, he's lying on his back with his paws in the air. Um, it's, it's beneficial, as you'd said, Hugh, from those perspectives, um, I think, for, for behavior change. But I guess that's, I'm coming at it from a perspective of someone who is educated on how these work and the fact that not to be like stuck on a number, for example, because actually the number is representative, it's an indicator, it's not an exact science. And I think that potentially is where some of this grey area comes is that it can be presented as an exact science, where mm-hmm. by and large it's, it isn't. It's funny you um, mentioned the Apple Watch. My head immediately went to there. And as James was talking about good and bad actors, I, th- I was thinking, we can't call Apple a bad actor on this podcast. <laughs> uh, but something like VO2 Max, for example, and it's, as you say, it's an estimation. It's mm. almost a trash biomarker in its own way. Mm. Because, you know, how far you run, the speed you run it, or, you know, how many, uh, the your blood pressure, your heart rate while you do it, those you can measure. Those are biomarkers in themselves and interesting the vo2 max calculation that i get presented or you know that's been based on that is based on a piece of fairly non fairly non-precise maths there yeah you're talking to an anesthetist there mate i'm pr- <laughs> yeah i absolutely agree yeah. it's, it, you, know, you cannot measure it unless you go into a lab with a yeah some 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 very large mask yeah. that, is, that is taking every single gas that's <laughs> coming in and out of you exactly uh, what, you, what you do with that information then you, you have that vo2 max calculation in front of you are you making any impact on uh, any change because of that I don't know. I personally have always ignored it, other than a bit of self-satisfaction when it goes really high and a bit of depression when it goes really low. <laughs> uh, but I'm sure there are some people making changes based on mm. that number mm. or obsessing over that number. Mm. And that's where I think consumer biomarkers can be a bit of a challenge. Is the, what, useful for behaviour change, but what, what if you start to obsess over it? And as you say, if you're not 100%, I don't know if educated is the right, 100% aware mm. that it's imprecise and is an indicator at best what what does that do for the consumer what does that change you know you make would you be making changes that aren't healthy because of it all good questions i don't think we have the answers i think we do the answer is yes like people are making those changes like, i'm pretty confident they are and i, I don't that's why I, I worry about this sort of stuff i get what you're saying about trends but Cosmetics, really? Book an appointment at your nearest hospital for a VO2 max check. (laughs) Uh, Please don't do that. The NHS is very overstretched. I'm not sure that that is critical or good use of NHS resources or any other health system wherever you are around the world. So our second and final story for this week talks about Amazon's foray into healthcare and Bloomberg has explored the success, the highlights and the lowlights of how that has gone so far. Hugh, do you want to give us an overview of Amazon's journey through healthcare and where we are now? Yeah, so I mean, Amazon have taken a few punts on healthcare over the years and uh, I think it's 
Some have gone more positively than others. Started out with a Haven Collaborative, as this article mentions, with Berkshire Hathaway and JP Morgan. That closed in 2021 after three years. Uh, its care app for virtual and in-home visits um, closed in December 2022. And um, its Halo wearable program closed in July 2023 after three years. There's one thing that stands out about some of these is you know, I think it's very much Amazon getting in on um, certain trends that maybe they weren't either ready for or that uh, trying to get into something too much or without the necessary expertise. And then uh, Amazon Pharmacy. And then there's the uh, One Medical uh, company that they acquired, which it has recently built into its Amazon Prime program. And you'll see probably a few headlines over the last couple of months about uh, Amazon launching $9 primary care uh, as part of Amazon Prime, which we are sadly sadly lacking in this country. I don't think it's going to be part of that program, <laughs> probably for obvious reasons. Um, but I think that's where we are with Amazon. And I, I guess the question is, are their days in care numbered? You know, should they be moving on and then taking the wins? Or is is this partnership with One Medical and its acquisition maybe where they'll find a sweet spot for, um, particularly in the US, uh, but perhaps elsewhere as well? And could we be see it rolling it out further? Mm, yeah, it's an interesting one. So Neil Lindsay, who's an ex- executive that apparently heads up Amazon's health services, has, of course, disagreed with um, Bloomberg's analysis and critique of the situation and says that the company is approaching healthcare with humility and we are going to have some hits and misses and we're OK with experimenting and learning. Um, and it goes on to talk about the fact that uh their CEO has also told investors that healthcare is among the company's largest long-term investments. Now, I think there's two interesting things here. That strikes me as um, slightly defeatist. I would expect, given Amazon, who they are, the level of data that they have and their tech and just general capabilities they would be having a lot more hits than they were misses and those hits being far greater than the misses. Um, And I I don't think you can really put that down to healthcare with humility. Um, As it says earlier, they clearly haven't worked with the right experts who know and understand healthcare sufficiently in order to to make it work. And it, it kind of feels like an interesting spin and just very altruistic. We know that Amazon is perhaps not centred on some of those values, um, notwithstanding they do you know great work in lots of different places. Um, but the the second thing that I just wanted to focus in on was um, the comment about healthcare being among the company's largest long term investments, and it, it echoes actually a conversation that was had at um, Kavanaugh Health panel event they hosted for Jeffrey's Healthcare. They did a breakfast event. Uh, They brought together, I think, about 80 different life science uh, venture capital funds. And they had four venture capitalists on stage talking about the chaos or an opportunity that may arise out of the current economic climate. One of the investors said, and I forget exactly which one it was, but one of the investors said that ultimately, we need to not get so caught up in what is happening in the here and now with the economy and with the world because healthcare is one of the few industries where it is a long game in terms of your investments. And I think it you know, obviously echoes here what the Amazon CEO is saying um, and that ultimately 
the the other part of that is that um, with healthcare, obviously you have those financial metrics that have to be hit. That is what investment is, but that has to be coupled with the impact. And I, I kind of feel that maybe that's what these spokespeople are trying to get at, but it, it kind of comes across more as a cover for the fact that they just haven't got that strategy right from the off. And unfortunately, it sent them off in a direction that hasn't worked. And I think it, it you know links to what Kareem was talking about. You've got to have deep sector expertise in order to be successful in a certain space. Healthcare is no exception. And in fact, I would say it's more critical probably in healthcare than, than many others because it is so nuanced, it's so complicated. And you need people who really know and understand those challenges and the way those systems work so viscerally. It's not, it's not a guessing game. Okay, so what would you have had them do then? So comparing them to Apple, Google, other big tech, what have they done differently? Personally, I just think like they are having some hits and misses, which is what they've said. They're experimenting, they're learning, they are. I take your point that, okay, strategy wasn't right, they haven't had the successes that they want, but healthcare is nuanced. But in terms of like you know, working with the right people and stuff. You know, I, we know people that work at Amazon. It's, it's not necessarily the talent. Is it more like organizations? Is it like, I just think don't write them off. I, I think that there's so much resource. Healthcare is going nowhere. The way that it's delivered is changing so quickly where it becomes more and more tech-based. Yeah, do, do not write them off. As long as they are not shutting this division down completely and have lost all desire to do anything. Yeah, I, I really don't see this going anywhere. To be clear, I'm absolutely not writing them off. And and to answer your question, what would what would we have them do? Well, it says really clearly here that they they didn't work with enough experts in the healthcare space. So to me, that's the answer. Is just a, is an is an easy fix. Of course, like of course, they're not going to go anywhere. And you're right. We know some really fantastic people that work within Amazon, within AWS, who do actually have that experience and are doing fantastic things. But in this scenario, that's the bit that they didn't get right, and they can fix that. But it depends what it is that they want to achieve from it. And I think that that they have to match the commercial opportunity with the problem that they're trying to solve and they need to understand that problem and that is by working with the people who know and understand it and it says in black and white that's the bit that they got wrong i just think that probably this article is not like they these statements i don't think are the best pr for them it's so just on that right (laughs) i think this is interesting though insiders tell bloomberg is how is how they start it right and then They've said Amazon handing control over to managers with little no healthcare experience, neglected guidance from industry experts who were recruited to help inform the tech giant's efforts. So what you're saying is absolutely right. That is what this article is basically suggesting was the problem, which is what insiders have said. Uh, And it defines insiders as former or current personnel. So I guess that's pretty reliable. But w- w- what would you say if you were a disgruntled former or current personnel? <laughs> like, we, we've, got to, we, we've got to look at this. We're in comms and media, right? Like, 
okay, yeah, it's a source. It's a few sources from the sounds of things. What's their motive? Uh, it's Amazon, right? Like, there must be so many narratives and counter-narratives and all sorts going on here, but is this a leak? Is this a... Is this something that that deflects from something else? Like I, I don't, I don't know. But I'm not going to directly answer that question. But I am going like all good politicians. <laughs> I would have just said something else entirely and ignored it. As a politician, I, th- I think if you set aside AWS, I think there's there's another story there as well in the health. That's been incredibly successful for them on the health side and the public services side, and basically they are the backbone of the internet. Amazon's business model. Take it, you know, wider than healthcare, larger than healthcare, across the board, has come in for a lot of praise and a lot of flack, which is it is typically partner, acquire, or replicate. Mm. And love it or hate it, there's been the thing is that they, they go and find someone who's doing something, might have the, the conversations, might even become an, a partnership, might then be an acquisition, mm. or it's a replication, which they then immediately wipe out and do an amazing job in that sector through just the sheer amount of cash they can put something behind it for quick wins, quicker wins than anyone else could achieve Mm. because they were able to do it at scale. They were able to take advantage of that backbone, that data that Mm. they have, the knowledge of the consumer, the knowledge of the pretty much everything that they have. Amazon knows more about you than pretty much anyone else other than Google. And that's that's been their big win in pretty much every industry and sector. And I think... What this is telling us is, is and I, I think it's that point, isn't it, about not having listened to the experts of sector expertise. Inevitably, you are going to come up between that piece where the industry expert tells you, this sector is different. And mm. you say, no sector is different. With enough money and enough capacity to scale, mm. you can do what you like. Health, I think we can argue, and there is a really good argument to be made generally, is different. And it is it's what we were talking about earlier. It is those, it's a much longer game. And if you are looking for the quick win in the way that Amazon will, you, you'll either want to be able to scale quickly or you'll want to be able to make it a loss leader for your other products. Look at their, their video platform. That is a loss leader. It, it keeps people signed up to Prime. Everyone is signed up to Prime in some form. And... I don't know whether one medical and their offering with the $9 could be a huge winner, but eventually at some point they'll have to turn around and say, this hasn't made us as much money, or it has made us as much money as it costs to in- integrate it, and it's not leading to something, or it is leading to something. That's when they might turn around and say, oh yeah, we probably should have listened to the health expert that said, mm. don't make primary care for $9 a month. Mm. And I think that's probably the big challenge for them is, have they listened to healthcare generally? Have they looked at what's going on in healthcare? We've seen even the biggest companies that have succeeded in healthcare. Some of them, obviously, in really good performance, and hope they go. For, uh, that you know they continue to grow. Some of them, Babylon. Others, we've lost. We've lost Pair Therapeutics because it overexpanded and it overdid its thing. We've lost Babylon because it. Well, I mean, many perspectives. <laughs> go back and on listen to that, that episode. Yes, please go and talk to Hugh Harvey. But. I wonder if it was a, if so far it's been a miscalculation. There's definitely potential for it to scale and grow. There's definitely potential for them to find that niche. But whether for the moment, the fact that they keep shuttering things after two or three years and things aren't quite working is an indicator that they haven't been patient enough yet. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I also think that this kind of serves as 
a bit of a cautionary tale to the rest of the industry where, you know, in the circles that we're in and the networks that we're a part of, we often see particularly clinicians asking these questions about solutions that have been created in the absence of consultation with a health system or the customer in the healthcare space and asking questions about how they can genuinely say they're solving that problem when they don't truly understand it. And you're right, it it is an example of where a big company who has so much resource hasn't potentially got this right, but it's not just the big companies who are doing it. And I think that it serves, therefore, as a reminder to much smaller organisations, maybe who are just starting out, bringing together people who have not come from a healthcare background to make sure, to say, make sure you have that person, even if it's one person that is pressure testing it, that's giving you advice, that is giving you honest feedback based on their own experience that's incredibly valuable and that can be the difference between make or break because lots of these companies don't have the capital to be able to make those big mistakes because ultimately they will just go under they aren't just going to get absorbed into the wider behemoth and so it's not you know a takedown of of amazon it's more about it's more of an example on a much bigger scale of what we see happening on a much smaller scale, but those things could be avoided if you talk to and collaborate with the right people who know and understand things and never, ever assume that you know and understand it best because there's always someone who's going to have more experience and a different perspective. Those different perspectives are important too, even if it's not shared with yourself or other experts around your table. Yeah, I think ultimately if if someone <laughs> if one of their sources is... Uh, directly quoted saying that Silicon Valley style invention, well, they thought Silicon Valley style invention could outsmart industry incumbents. Okay, fair enough. That's that's pretty damning. Um, I do think though that with all analysis that we do on this podcast, we should uh, we should take unnamed sources with a pinch of salt at least somewhat. Uh, and like you said, it's not a takedown of Amazon. It's more a reflection on approach. And actually, if something can be learned from this, then yeah, I think that was the most important thing. I think. Um, I think you guys have done a lot to convince me there of what has potentially gone on behind the scenes, but I don't miss an opportunity to play devil's advocate. No, he does not. (laughs) And on that note, uh, I think we can wrap for the week. We are heading into our Christmas party tomorrow, so more festivities. We'll report back on, of course, no debauchery, lots of fun. Um, And... I just want to say I wish you could see how cute these dogs are looking right now. They have been so well-behaved, invaluable contributions. I'm sure you've heard the lapping of the water, the growling, whining. We've had it all, but uh, it's definitely added a a certain something. So uh, we'll be for sure bringing them back. Uh, And uh, we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye.